You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is Brian McClanahan, your host, and this is episode 80, covering the week of July 10th through July 14, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you about a number of things. First and foremost, you can follow us on all of our social media accounts. You can like us on Facebook. Just search for Abbeville Institute. You can follow us on Twitter at Abbeville I-N-S-T, or you can like our YouTube page, which is also Abbeville I-N-S-T. So just go on out there and look for the Abbeville Institute. If you want to find a quick and easy button to get to those social media outlets, you can go to our webpage, which is abbevilleinstitute.org. And there you can find all of our social media links with the little F button, Facebook, the little bird for Twitter, and uh, the little uh, uh, YouTube uh, symbol up at the top. And also you can give us an email address, and we'll give you a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell. And not only that, you will get our Daily Dose of Dixie, which comes out Monday through Friday, and then our Week in Review email over the weekend, uh, which also includes a link to this podcast. So go on out there and do those things. Uh, also on our webpage, you will find at the top of the page a button that says support. If you click on that and you scroll on down to memberships for individuals, you can find all of our individual membership options, such as uh, as little as $3 a month if you're a student or $25 a year, or you can contribute uh, $5 a month or $50 a year minimum if you are uh, a not a student, a college student or graduate student. And, of course, the sky's the limit beyond that. But if you would like to help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, help keep this podcast going, the website going, all of our programs, which, if you're hearing this, we've just wrapped up our 15th annual summer school. There'll be more on that in the future. Uh, You can do that by helping uh, us by giving us a donation. So uh, we would love to have your support, and we appreciate anything you might want to contribute. Okay, so let's talk about the material that we had for the week. Uh, this week was uh, was rather interesting because we covered uh, three individuals who are, in some ways, uh, some of the most maligned people in uh, American history. Um, it hasn't always been that way, and they're not always considered to be, or haven't always considered to be bad people, uh, but it's the way that we interpret history today that is um, the key to that. And, and I think one thing we have to understand about history most of history is interpretation. Uh, Thucydides recognized this when he was writing his Peloponnesian Wars. He was dependent on his sources. And so as history is the chronicle of human experience and uh, events, people, places, things of that nature, of course, all those things are going to have a substantial amount of bias. Uh, Jacob Burkhart understood this when he wrote the uh, history of the civilization of the Renaissance in Italy, uh, among other things. So History is all biased, and interpretation is biased. How I might see a document may differ from how someone else sees a document, and vice versa. And so when we start talking about the war or different events in history, you know, the founding period, the 20th century America, whatever it is, those particular, the way we view those things is going to be skewed by our own an impression of that event and our own interpretation of that event. There are, as if, if you uh, were lucky enough to take uh, Clyde Wilson as a graduate student, one of the things he used to often say is that there are very few facts in history, but there's a lot of interpretation. Uh, and I think that's what we're battling here. And this, of course, was the point of my talk uh, during the summer school on Thursday. But 
uh, on one of my talks. But her interpretation is important. And so the people that we're looking at today, the, the people that we're covering, that we covered this week at the Abbeville Institute, are all uh, suffering from modern interpretation. Uh, it doesn't mean that these interpretations are entirely wrong all the time. It doesn't mean that they're not bringing up something that maybe somebody else didn't see or that when you look at these particular individuals or an event, uh, you're going to have your own perspective on those things. But what we don't need to do is say, well, this interpretation is entirely wrong because that interpretation is built on an impression that people have made from an event or a person. And so as people are complex, as events are complex, so is history. As I've often told all of my students, history can be the most difficult subject you would ever take because it is the variety of human experience plainly set out for all to see, as Burkhart said. Uh, and that is the important part of it. That's why it's interpretation and not simply fact. We tend to think that history is fact. Well, this happened, this happened, this happened, and this is the fact of how it happened. No, that's an interpretation of how it happened. And so one of the things we try to do at the Institute, of course, through a variety of different areas, whether it's uh, philosophy, history, religion, economics, politics, culture, literature, music, we try to give you an interpretation from our perspective on how we see these things. And there are people that agree with us and people that don't. But that's what real history is supposed to be. Now, the establishment historians don't want that because that creates problems for them. But I think that there are establishment historians who are very good, and they do see this, and they understand as uh, they're, they're real professionals. But uh, there's a large number of establishment historians who don't. And graduate students, what they do is they memorize whatever people say about something, and then they, they, um, they just avoid it. A nice example of that is the Reconstruction period. Most graduate students have never actually read William Dunning's Reconstruction they just know that the Dunning School is X, Y, and Z, that what they've been told about it. They've never read Merton Coulter's uh, Reconstruction, a book on Reconstruction in the South. They've never read it. They just know, well, that's the traditional interpretation. They don't, they don't actually know what's in it. The people that will actually go out and read it, and there's a nice you know, point about this when it comes to things like um, the study of the antebellum South, and, of course, you had a large number of historians in the early 20th century and late 19th century writing about that period. And they're often castigated for being, well, they're just lost causers. But the pros that have gone out and read it said, you know, there's a lot of valuable information here that we can use. We may not agree with them ideologically. We may not agree with what their conclusions are ultimately. But there's good stuff here. They're asking good questions. And our answers to those questions may be different than their answers to those questions. But the questions are valid. The material is valid. This is what Eugene Genovese figured out. Uh, he started out as a, as a dyed-in-the-wool communist. Uh, even his Roll, Jordan, Roll, which is a fantastic book, is still colored a little bit by his early Marxism. Uh, but by the time he died, he was asking the same questions but coming to different conclusions based on his understanding of the people that he was reading and the history and the primary material. Forrest MacDonald was famous for not reading much secondary material. He would read only primary material because that's how he would gain his conclusions. He didn't really care, oftentimes, what everyone else was saying. Now, of course, he had a home run by taking apart Charles Beard. But he would often have his wife go out and read all the secondary material and then summarize it for him so he could understand what was there. But he did the primary research. 
And so when you start looking at historiography and you start understanding, well, most of the time professional history is about interpretation. It's about what this group of people thinks and what this group of people thinks. And so I, I say all that to bring us into these, to these individuals that we're going to talk about, three of them this week, that are often uh, maligned by the modern historical profession because they don't agree with what they say, so they portray them in a negative light. And those three people would be Nathan Bedford Forrest, Richard B. Russell, and uh, Robert Louis Dabney. And we also had a piece this week we'll start with uh, on uh, the by Gail Jarvis. He does great pieces on you know, popular stuff and what's going on, this one about Monument Avenue. But this actually leads into what I'm talking about with interpretation. So let's actually start with that. Gail Jarvis's piece on Monday was entitled Carpetbagging Southern History. And he begins by saying, look, this effort to tear down monuments has met a lot of opposition. Now, of course, it's happened. We've seen it happen in, in New Orleans. Uh, we've seen it happen in other places, but it's meeting a lot of opposition. And so what the left is doing oftentimes now is pivoting to a different tactic, and that tactic would be uh, to contextualize these monuments, to put a plaque, stick a slap, a big old plaque on there that says, this monument is wrong. We can leave it up, but it's wrong. And so the example he gives is what's going on in Richmond today. You have Monument Avenue in Richmond, which is just a wonderful place. If you've never been there, it's, it's fantastic. But the current, uh, current mayor of, uh, of Richmond is a man named LeVar Stoney. And LeVar Stoney does not like these monuments, but he cannot take them down because they're protected by law. So what he's done is he's come up with a commission to study these monuments and then contextualize the monuments. But here is the charge. This is wonderful that Gail put this out there. Here is the charge that Stoney gave to this commission. This is what he. Uh, this is this is a quote, and then from from Gail Jarvis, and then and then I'll tell you where he's quoting Stoney. So this is from Jarvis. To give the appearance of an impartial community effort, Stoney formed a Monument Avenue commission composed of historians, artists, authors, and community leaders to research and propose language for, quote-unquote, contextualized plaques for these monuments. But excerpts from Stoney's announcement of the commission's creation raise questions about impartiality. Now, this is a quote from Stoney. Quote, It's our responsibility to set the historical record straight on Monument Avenue's Confederate uh, statuary. Equal part myth and deception, they were the alternate facts of their time. A false narrative etched in stone and bronze more than 100 years ago not only to lionize the architects and defenders of slavery, but to perpetuate the tyranny and terror of Jim Crow and reassert a new era of white supremacy. These monuments have become a, a default endorsement of that shameful period, one that, is, one that does a disservice to the principles of racial equality, tolerance, and unity we celebrate. So already from the beginning, you can see these aren't going to be impartial. In fact, you can't even submit anything that would be laudatory towards these individuals or monuments. As Jarvis continues, quote, the commission has two options. One, denigrate the Confederacy itself, or two, denigrate the motives for erecting the monuments. Some members might try for nonpartisan language, hoping to create a middle ground, but the mayor's charge to the commission affords little room for deviant interpretations. To meet the mayor's goal, members must not present the Confederate statuary as benign or even remotely laudatory. They must be depicted in a malignant and uh, malignant manner, excuse me. Should you have any doubts about Mayor Stoney's intentions, you should be aware that he has also said that, that contextualizing is a first step. 
So only the first step. Obviously, the second step would be to take it down. But this gets into interpretation. What does this mean? Of course, the, the idea that these were somehow put up, as Stoney suggests, is completely wrong. They were done in an effort to ensure that the memory of the people who had suffered and died during that war would not be forgotten. Not to lionize the uh, architects and defenders of slavery. That <laughs> You won't even find a reference to slavery on these monuments. And uh, it wasn't to perpetuate the tyranny and terror of Jim Crow. That, that had nothing to do with it. The first Confederate Memorial Day was held in 1866, and shortly thereafter you started seeing monuments put up to Confederate soldiers who had died in the war. These are soldiers' monuments. They're about the men who had served and died. 75% of the white southern population had fought in the war. And when you had the numbers of men that were killed... It was a huge percentage of the southern population, not just killed, but wounded. And we're talking about grave wounds, you know, losing arms, losing legs and hands, uh, you know, terrible wounds. Uh, this, these things were there for that reason. And, of course, also, as the one uh, in Columbus, Georgia said, to perpetuate the sovereignty of the states, to ensure that their ideas of federalism would not be destroyed by the central government, ultimately. And I think that's something else that's important. Because this whole idea that, oh, they're trying to sneak this in here, all these, uh, all these things that we you know, find intolerable today, Jim Cronin, they're trying to sneak them in. No, it wasn't being snuck in. Everyone knew it was happening. The North accepted it just fine because that was the general attitude of the day. So that had nothing to do with state authority. But they were concerned that the whole idea of state sovereignty would be destroyed by their loss in the war. And they didn't want that to happen. They didn't want the, the principles behind secession or nullification or these type of things to go away just because they lost. And so in many ways, these monuments were also an act of defiance to the central authority. Defiance to the central authority, which is one of the reasons why they have to go, because people say, well, these people are traitors. They're there are other rebels. We can't have that up there. That, that spits in the face of the general government. Well, exactly. <laughs> Which is why uh, people, so many people want to keep them there. So uh, it's important to note that interpretation is being questioned here. That's what's at stake. It's interpretation of these things. And so when you look at interpretation... We go to Nathan Bedford Forrest, who, of course, his birthday was this week, July 13th. So we ran a piece on Forrest on the 11th, a book review on a new book on Forrest, and also a piece on the 13th by Clyde Wilson, who uh, wrote the introduction to a book on Forrest. So this first one is by James Rutledge Roche, and it's a review of the book Bust Hell Wide Open by Samuel Mitchum, and it was published by Regnery History late last year, 2016. And uh, this is wonderful that um, Regnery History would publish this. Uh, Samuel Mitchum, in fact, is very good friends with the Kennedy brothers out of Louisiana. So um, he's in good company there. But this is a, a very good modern interpretation of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, and as as Roche says, Mitchum's bust hell wide open can ride in the company of Forrest classics such as uh, John Wythe's 
That Devil Forest, Andrew Nelson Lytle's Bedford Forest and his Critter Company, and Robert Self Henry's First with the Most. And so this is a good, solid interpretation of Forest. Uh, and one thing we have to understand about Forrest uh, is that he was, at one time, one of the most recognized soldiers in American history, a valiant soldier, a great cavalry officer, a man who could not be defeated. He lost one battle when he was so outnumbered he couldn't, he couldn't even uh, uh, thought to have won that battle in Selma at the end of the war. And so, um, as, as uh, Rose says, uh, Mitchum does not sugarcoat the fact that Forrest was a slave trader and slave owner. He doesn't do that. He gets into Forrest's life, but he also focuses quite extensively on why he was one of the great heroes of the war, why he was one of these people that should be studied and revered because of his role as a soldier, particularly if you're interested in military history. And we have to understand, as Clyde is going to point out on Thursday, uh, on the Thursday piece, where Forrest fits within American history as well. Not just Southern history, but American history. Roche says, Mitchum, a former soldier and experienced military historian, describes every one of Forrest's battles with competence and clarity. Mitchum wisely uses Forrest's very first battle at Sacramento, Kentucky, as a demonstration. And he points out several things about uh, 10 points about Forrest that made him such a great soldier. One of the things is was he was always the aggressor. And he always did what the enemy least expected. And so these 10 points allow you to get into what Forrest was as a soldier and what he was uh, as, as he, why he was such a southern hero. He discusses Fort Pillow. He discusses all the things that, of course, Forrest is now... Uh, the clan. He discusses all these things that Forrest is known for. And he, he doesn't uh, say that these things, of course, never happened, but he puts them within context. And I think that's the important thing, understanding people from the time in which they lived. Uh, and he also, Roche says, Mitchum also addresses one of the most tantalizing what-ifs of the war. What if this, in the summer and autumn of 1864, Confederate President Jefferson Davis had allowed Forrest to raid the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad supplying General Sherman's Atlanta campaign? What if that had happened? Well, things might have turned out differently. So, when you, the thing that I like about this, of course, is that a modern press, Regnery, has decided to issue a book in the last year that is so non-PC that, uh, you know, most people wouldn't even have touched this thing, a major press like Regnery, but they did because it serves a valuable lesson. Forrest's life is interpretation. And the simple charge of, you know, well, he was a racist or he's a slaveholder, I mean, this, this doesn't, this doesn't, it's not, that's an, an anti-intellectual charge. Okay, so he was. So was Abraham Lincoln. He was a racist too. But we like him, don't we? So what is it about Forrest that we could actually like? Well, we could actually say, well, this is, these are the good things that he did. And in that way, this is why when we start looking at these historical figures, it comes down again to interpretation. And we need to remember that as we are talking about Southern history. It's interpretation that's at stake here, 
not the people themselves, not the facts, but the interpretation that we're dealing with. And so with that in mind, on Wednesday, I ran a piece by yours truly entitled Reconsidering Richard B. Russell. And um, maybe if you're a younger person, you don't remember Richard B. Russell. But Richard B. Russell, and, and one of the other reasons is because he's often not talked about anymore unless it's a hit piece on the South. But Richard B. Russell was probably the most important senator in uh, the 20th century, United States senator in the 20th century. He's from Georgia. And uh, Richard B. Russell was in the Senate for three decades uh, and in those three, actually almost four decades, in that almost four decades in the Senate, he basically ran the Senate. And there was a time that Southerners, what was called the Southern Bloc, ran, ran all the important committees in the Senate. They were chairman of all the most important committees. And they helped set the legislative agenda. Uh, whether it was during the New Deal, Russell was very much a populist. You can... You can quibble with his politics at times. I, I don't always think Russell was right, even about his political uh, positions, when you even get beyond the issues of race. Uh, he wasn't, uh, he was much more of a, you know, a populist, too much of a populist in terms of uh, active central government legislation for X, Y, and Z than, than, than I care for. But you have to understand why he was doing that. So the object of, of a historian should be to understand, not condemn. Why was Richard Russell put in this position? Why was he doing these things? What was the background? Who was he as a man? What is the tradition that he's advancing here? Or the positions that he's advancing here? Uh, and the one thing about the Southern Bloc is that these men really groomed people for power. Uh, you got into the club if you were accepted. Now, not all the Southerners were accepted in the Southern Bloc. There were some that they shunned. There were some they really didn't care for a whole lot. Uh, people like Theodore Bilbo, who even though he was from Mississippi, was not part of that Southern Bloc. This was a gentleman's group. People like Sam Urban were in it. Of course, Russell and um, John Stennis. So there were people in the Southern Bloc that uh, were groomed to be the leaders of the Senate, and they were in many ways. Uh, and so that Southern Bloc was very powerful in the mid-20th century. And much of the legislation that these men advanced contained an obvious Jeffersonian influence. Um, the problem with it, of course, looking back on it now, is that they were using big government to do some of these things. But I think the way to understand that, and again, it's not something that I personally agree with, using unconstitutional legislation to get back at unconstitutional legislation. But to these Southerners, the idea was to uh, you know, harpoon big banks and big corporations, uh, to, to give loans to farmers, the idea was to get back at the North using the apparatus they established. To get back at Northern political economy and Yankee meddling. It's even extended to foreign policy where many Southerners, even though they became hawkish at times and they would support uh, you know, a very aggressive American foreign policy at times, at times, they would not. And that's actually at the end of this piece, I put three YouTube videos of a conversation that Russell had with Lyndon Johnson in 1964, in May of 1964, before the United States escalated in Vietnam. And Russell told Johnson, 
I don't think we should be there. I don't think we should be in Southeast Asia. I think it's going to be a mess for Americans. I think it's going to cause all kinds of problems for us. And by getting involved in Southeast Asia, this is going to cause major, major uh, conflicts for the United States moving forward, domestic conflicts, political conflicts, foreign policy conflicts. We shouldn't be involved in Vietnam. And Johnson seemed like he sort of agreed. Of course, Johnson very much understood the Gulf of Tonkin incident was a, was a fraud, and that's a whole other thing. What's, but you know, Johnson and Russell were uh, very good friends. In fact, at the end of the conversation, Lyndon Johnson tells Richard Russell he loves him. And it was Richard Russell who groomed Lyndon Johnson. Uh, so these guys were very good friends. One of the other things that's funny about those conversations is that um, uh, Russell and Johnson hate Lodge of Massachusetts. They can't stand the guy. And uh, he was, you know, this Republican from Massachusetts. They thought he was just stuck on himself. He doesn't do anything. Johnson was critical of Lodge. And so, yeah, I mean, here you have this north-south split. And Johnson, for all of his faults, he still was, in many ways, a southerner first and foremost. And he worried about how the south would be portrayed. I think that's part of the reason why uh, he was so interested uh, because of the stigma around the South, he wanted to change some things. He wanted uh, to to actually ha- to raise the perception of the South, which is why he was interested in much of the civil rights legislation that he supported ultimately. Uh, and I think that in that way, Johnson was perceptive. Um, but uh, it's it's uh, it's amazing, you know, that we we have Russell who was. At the time, the most powerful man, but of course you don't really hear much about Russell except that he was a block to civil rights legislation. And that's true, he was. And so we can look at that and say, yeah, I mean, this was a mistake. Uh, this was a mistake or, um, you know, maybe uh, we shouldn't have, um, we, we, should, we should be critical of Russell for this. But we also, by just focusing on that, miss everything else that Richard Russell was doing. His position on American foreign policy was a f- refreshing departure from the modern establishment effort to bomb the world to submission. Uh, he kept Douglas MacArthur from starting World War III. The problem is, you know, if, if Russell if it was not for the for the issue of, of civil rights, Russell would be probably the most respected American senator of the 20th century. There'd be no calls to rename the United States Senate building or the federal courthouse in Atlanta. None of that would exist. Now, of course, Northerners can have those positions and they can get away with it. It's okay. Southerners can't, you know. Abraham Lincoln was a was an ardent racist, but of course, we can we can love Abraham Lincoln, but we can't love a Southerner with the same position. Of course, Lincoln was also born in Kentucky and lived in Illinois, but um, a lot of people say, well, he was kind of a Southerner. Okay, I mean, there are Southerners that claim him. Yeah, he was a Southerner. Look, a Southerner saved the Union, quote unquote. Uh, so the point of this is that Russell needs more scholarly attention from people that are not going to condemn everything he did or view everything through the lens of race, and that's the issue. Can you do? Can you look at other stuff in Russell's career and not see race behind every move that he made? And I think you can. The effort of the historian should be to understand rather than condemn, and that would be good history. We... By doing that, we're ignoring the Jeffersonian contributions these men made to American government and society with their role in the American century. We're missing that. And so we should be uh, very interested in the New South period. And in fact, that's what the last piece of the week we'll get into. But before that, just quickly go through uh, Clyde Wilson's piece on uh, Thursday entitled A Rebel Born. 
And uh, this is the foreword uh, to uh, Lachlan Seabrook's A Rebel Born. And uh, Clyde does, uh, he, we've, we've already published a piece that Clyde wrote on Forrest uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, but he points out some very important facts about Forrest. Um, for example, Forrest's record is even more impressive when we remember that the armies he opposed were the biggest ever mustered in the, country, in the century between Napoleon and World War I. That's, that's a fact. Um, and, of course, he points out that this campaign against the South is not just, it's not just about the Confederacy, it's about the entire South. It's people, past, present, future. And by taking apart Forrest, you're taking that apart. Uh, he also points out that Forrest's descendants, uh, his, his grandson, General Nathan Bedford Forrest, in the U.S. Army, died in 1943 when his plane was shot down over Germany. As Clyde says, his hatred of the South does not represent, uh, does not rest upon, excuse me, historical judgment. It is a result of an ideological will in which, to which to power in which propaganda slogans are repeated again and again to stop independent thought and discussion and impose an official party line of historical interpretation. Again, it's about interpretation. That's the point, which is why we try to put people up and say, well, here is another perspective. And why these people might be important. Why we should reconsider these people. Why Americans should think these people are great or important. An ideological will to power in which propaganda slogans are repeated again and again to stop independent thought and discussion and impose an official party line of historical interpretation. That's the point. And in that regard, you look at someone like Robert Louis Dabney, who we, uh, we published a piece by Boyd Cathy on Friday the 14th. It's entitled Robert Louis Dabney and the New South Creed. Now, the New South is something that's been, become quite uh, interesting to me in the last few years. And Dabney was a staunch critic of the New South, in particular industrialization and some of the uh, theological changes that he saw. It wasn't just about the role of people in society and these kind of things. Dabney was concerned about the spiritual people and what was happening in the South. He said it was the tenets of the New South Creed Robert uh, Dabney attacked, whether industrialism, monopoly, educational reform, or religious heresy, had existed in the South before the war. In those days, Kathy says, plantation agriculture had been the unchallenged king. Now defeat had given rise to strong doubts as to the basis of, for Southern society. And so he's looking at these things and saying, my gosh, uh, educational reform is going gonna, is gonna to destroy the South, or industrialization is going to destroy the South, or monopoly, big banks, big business, this is going to destroy the, the, the South. Dabney said this in 1894, I am the Cassandra of Yankeedom, predestined to prophecy truth and never to be believed until too late. And I think that's one of the things. And of course, Dabney was uh, against progress with a capital P. Not, not, Southerners were not anti-progress. They were against progress with a capital P, or equality with a capital E, which were uh, ideologies in and of themselves, progress for the sake of progress, equality for the sake of equality. Well, what does that mean? Um, and, of course, progress to many Southerners meant a different type of moneyed economy. And, and uh, as we've talked about with the agrarians, there's, there's some drawbacks to this. Now, uh, it's interesting by the... Uh, 
uh, middle of the 20th century, Southerners have started to deal with that industrial economy in a different way uh, in terms of labor relationships. And I think they really set the standard for that. We often talk about Google and what Google has done for uh, labor relationships. But Southerners were doing things like that long before Google had the best working environment, supposedly, in America. It was the way they viewed the role of labor and management. And so when you read this and you read what Dabney was saying about the New South and industrialization, and thing, you, you almost feel a sense of depression come over you because he was pointing things out that were going to be bad about it in the late 19th century, in the 1870s and 80s and 90s. Dabney was uh, concerned about what would happen. Uh, Dr. Cathy has an interesting quote. He said, this is from Dabney. He said, Dabney said this, quote, The American Nail Makers Association, instead of observing the law of supply and demand, ordains what we shall pay for each nail driven in America. The Standard Oil Company inflates the price of petroleum and the other oils and depresses that of the farmer's cottonseed. The Sugar Trust regulates the price at which we shall taste the sweets of life. There is now a cigarette trust fixing the monopoly of price at which our boys shall poison themselves and pollute the atmosphere around. That's an interesting point. You know, tobacco was a huge industry in the South. And uh, here's Dabney saying, this is poison. You shouldn't use these things. And it pollutes the atmosphere and there's smoke all around us all the time. And he wants to have fresh, clean air. I mean, it's interesting uh, some of the ways they, that he used, um, some of the phrases he used to describe the problems. So Dabney was pointing out problems of the New South before some of these things became part of what was the populist movement or later on. And I think that's important. Again, Dabney is a malign character because he was uh, a, a member of the Confederate uh, uh, officer corps, and um, he uh, was often in favor of the South's uh, social positions and, and things of that nature. But Dabney was so prescient in pointing out some of the things that are going to happen with the New South and industrialization and grayism and all these kind of things. And so we forget at our own peril what Dabney had to say about these type of things. Because he's just a bad guy, we can't listen to anything else he had to say. There are people that are, are moving away from this. Um, and, uh, for example, Fitzhugh, uh, who wrote the sociology uh, for the South, um, his this book is now being looked at by uh, Marxists. It's really interesting because he was very critical of industrial society and, and made some stabbing points. Now, of course, Fitzhugh is often called a Southern Socialist, uh, and he, uh, in some cases, you might be able to make that case. But um, his point was, you know, we, we've got, you've got these different types of, of economic conflict that we need to deal with in the South. And of course, so some people are saying, well, yeah, let's separate the, the stuff that we don't like and look at the things that actually make sense for modern society. And that's all we're trying to do at the Abbeville Institute. What can the Old South teach us how to live? What can the New South teach us in how to live? There are great examples in the Southern tradition that we need to emulate and use as examples moving forward. And that's all we're trying to do and give you different interpretation and different perspective on these things that you don't usually get from the mainstream historical establishment and definitely from the mainstream media and the mainstream political class. Until next time, good day.